0: Good morning, Uh, my name is Joseph McDaniels and I am the Director of Ministries to Families and Youth here at Old Orchard Church and like Ron said in his greeting at Old Orchard we have a tradition that every fall when all the kids go back to school we have a kind of back to school sermon. And you'll see on the front cover of your bulletin, actually, an uh, illustration by our own Kaylee O'Neill. She's a really talented artist. And what she's done is really captured this idea that, you know, to, le- to the learning of the reading of books and the writing of books and to knowledge and learning, there really is no end. And I'm sure that if you look at that picture, all of you will recognize yourselves at some point. I certainly do recognize myself there. And as I was meditating on this and thinking about what is schooling for, that was the question that I asked. Well, what is schooling for? Why do we send our kids to school for 12, 13, 14? I think I spent about 20 years of my life in school. And the answer is pretty obvious. We want our kids to learn things. We want them to learn about math and science and all these things. Esther Meek, a Christian philosopher, paints knowing in these vivid Beautiful colors, she says. Knowing is a pilgrimage. It requires taking personal responsibility, born of love, to pledge allegiance to what we do not yet know. It requires relying on seemingly opaque guidance to venture into the darkness of half understanding. We invite its gracious and surprising self disclosure. Seeking to indwell its clues to make sense of a hidden pattern, we risk our forever being changed. It's an adventure. And I read that and I thought, how beautiful, but I couldn't help but think how many of our high school and middle school and even college students read something like that and scoff. Ha! That's what learning's about? What are our kids actually learning? Chap Clark, an anthropologist and ethnographer, did a study. I've talked about him before. He wrote a book called Hurt. Getting inside the world of today's teenager is the subtitle. He went out to California, and he was a substitute teacher. And during that time, he interviewed all kinds of students. He gave them questionnaires. He taught, and he observed. And then he he said, what kinds of patterns can I find? And here's what Clark says students are learning at school. They're learning how to scam the system. Students learn at school how to cheat. That's what he said. He said, among students I interviewed, it's so widespread that it's considered to be the norm among many students. And let me tell you, if this is shocking to you because it's inconsistent with your experience at school, at 30 years old, let me tell you, it is not inconsistent with my experience in school. Cheating was, in fact, the norm when I went to high school. Clark writes, many teens simply will do whatever they believe is necessary to fulfill the expectations of their parents and teachers. And cheating becomes the way they deem best to do that. There's a widespread rationalization that goes something like this, school isn't fair, my teachers aren't fair, why should I be fair to them? That's a common belief. But don't put too much weight on students. Yes, the buck stops with them, but listen to David Brooks, columnist for the New York Times. He says, one of the most destructive forces in American life today is the tyranny of the grade point average. To get into top schools, students need to get straight A's or close. That means that students are not rewarded for developing a passion for a subject and following their curiosity wherever it takes them. They are rewarded if they can carefully budget their mental energies and demonstrate proficiency across all academic disciplines. They are rewarded for mastering the method of being a good student, not for their passion for the content of any particular area of learning. Clark says that the joy of learning is no longer a motivator among high school and middle school students, even though most teachers still presume it to be and still think that it should be. And maybe that's true. But have you ever noticed that the pursuit of knowledge in general is less joyful than it once was? The pursuit of knowledge in our day is in fact far more anxiety-ridden than it's ever been. Why is that the case? Well, what are our expectations for learning? What are our expectations for knowledge? What do we hope to get out of learning? What do we hope to get out of knowledge? Here's what I think. I think we're looking for certainty. And I think we're looking for predictability, I think we're looking for security, and I think we're looking for safety and comfort. We're looking for the hope of success or even a ticket to success. We're looking for the right to success. I studied. I learned. I passed the exam. Where's my job? More knowledge, more data, more learning. These things are supposed to lead us to the good life. This is why our news programs are a parade of experts. We have economists telling us about the trends in the stock market and telling us where to invest our money. Political scientists and pollsters tell us which way the election's going to go, what the American people value, what they want. Psychologists, we turn to them to know how to feel good about ourselves and how to raise healthy children. We turn to doctors to know what food to eat and what medicines to take. And we even turn to religious experts to get in touch with the spiritual, with ourselves, or with God. We are awash in data, in experts, and in analyses. But we are less certain than ever about fundamental questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I created for? How do I succeed at life? And what does succeeding at life even mean? What is the good life? And of course, in the midst of this, we often find ourselves thinking, if I only knew a little bit more, maybe then I would know. We crave certainty in this life, but we lack faith. We crave certainty, but we lack faith. Now that may sound strange to you. What does faith have to do with knowledge? Well, what exactly is knowledge anyways, and what does it mean to know anything? How do you know that you know what you know, right? It's complicated, okay? This is kind of the highest levels of abstraction. There's an entire branch of philosophy that's dedicated to the study of how we know things and what is knowledge. It's controversial. It's disputed. It's difficult to understand. Now, I'm happy to dive into it with you after the sermon, because uh, I love that stuff, But but the one element, here's what I want you to focus on today. The one element of knowledge that I want you to focus on is this. All knowing involves an element of faith. All knowing involves an element of faith. I'm going to give you an an illustration to show you what I mean. Most of you will probably be familiar with the death of JFK Jr. JFK Jr., the son of Jack, you know Jack Kennedy, the president who was assassinated, died in a plane crash over the Atlantic Ocean. He uh, was a, an, a kind of an amateur pilot, and he and his wife and his wife's sister were flying from Essex County, New Jersey, over to Martha's Vineyard for a funeral. And they were supposed to leave at about six o'clock, but they had been delayed. You know, the, the sister-in-law got was late at work, and then she got caught in traffic. They didn't end up leaving until about eight forty, and the sun had already set and it was getting dark. And what they didn't know is that hazy conditions were ahead of them. See, he didn't fly along the coast in order to keep himself oriented with the lights of the city. He took the shorter route, maybe because they were late, I don't know. And he flew directly over the Atlantic Ocean to get there. And in the midst of that, what most experts think is he succumbed to what's called spatial disorientation. You may know it as vertigo. Okay, so here's how it works. In your inner ear... Right, you have, that's the mechanism that your body uses for you to keep your balance. Okay? And it's coordinated with visual cues. All right? So your, your vision helps you to balance. If you don't believe me, stand on one leg and close your eyes and see how your balance shifts back and forth. Well, this is important for pilots to know because when a pilot gets out into the, you know, into the, the sky, right, if he's enveloped by a cloud or if it's so dark he can't see the horizon line, or if it's so dark that the sea looks just like the sky, or if there's haze and clouds like there was that night that JFK Jr. died, what happens is is your body begins to give you false signals. Vertigo is when you're actually moving straight, but your body is telling you the plane is going up. And so you jam on the, the stick and drive the plane into the ground. Many pilots have succumbed to this. And so JFK Jr. had a choice at that moment. He didn't have the right training, but he had a choice at that moment. He could trust what it was that his body was telling him, or he could trust the instruments that were on the panel in front of him. He had a choice to make. Who was he going to trust? Was he going to trust his body, or was he going to trust his instruments? And unfortunately, he did not have the training to know that he should trust his instruments. There is a choice in who you trust. There is a choice in what you believe. Trust is an element of everything that you know. Trust is a necessary component of all knowledge and of all knowing. Now, this is a key question. What do you trust in order to know? Or better yet, who are you trusting in order to know? This question is at the heart of our uncertainty We try to cure our uncertainty with more experts and more analysis and more data, but we do not need more information. What we need is a trustworthy source. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. And turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now, trust has been a problem for us since the beginning. In fact, trust is the problem in the beginning. Most of you are familiar with Genesis chapters 1 through 3. God creates the world, He creates the heavens, He creates the earth. He populates the sea with fish and the land with um, plants and animals, He populates the sky with birds. And then as though the pinnacle of his creation, he makes man, male and female, he makes them in his own image. And he takes man and he sets him in the garden, the garden of Eden. And he says, of all the trees which are pleasing to the eye, good for fruit, you may eat of anyone that you like, but you may not eat from the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we come to chapter 3, and we are introduced to The serpent. And they knew that they were naked. Of course, God comes into the scene most immediately after this and curses follow their disobedience. There's a few things that I want for you to notice about this passage. When God curses the man, he says it like this. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree... That's how the curse begins. Drew Johnson, a philosopher and biblical scholar, wants us to notice something. He wants us to note that eating comes because of listening, not listening because of eating. When they confess to hiding from God and they confess their nakedness, God says, who told you that you were naked? The sin is is in listening to the wrong voice. The man listens to the woman, and by implication, the serpent, he chooses to listen to himself over God. Johnson writes, If there is a fall in this story, it clearly begins with a shift of trust. I think this is right. And the man and the woman submit to the wrong authority. They listen to the wrong voice. And notice too, the serpent doesn't exactly give them the wrong information. This is important. They don't die right away, at least not physically. They do become like God. Verse 22 reads, Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Their eyes are opened to their nakedness. The emphasis here is not on the wrong information, but on an untrustworthy source crafty. This is how the serpent is described. Did God really say? One Hebrew scholar explains that this phrase does not express uncertainty as to whether God had said it, but implies instead that it is so unreasonable a command that God must be far too restrictive to be trusted. The serpent never tells the woman to disobey. Eve chooses that on her own, She chooses to trust the serpent's interpretation of the world rather than God's. This is why trust and faith are at the heart of what it means to know. Our lives are much more like JFK Jr. in that plane than we often realize. We are all in the grips of a kind of vertigo, and we must learn to trust something other than ourselves. Proverbs 3 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. The image there is of a broken crutch. It will support you for a time, but when it breaks, it will pierce your side. It's not hard to see how this applies to cheating. The stakes are high. The consequences are real. My parents will get on my, cri- my case. If I don't get an A on this exam, my grades are going to drop. I won't be able to play sports. I'll be held back a year. That would be humiliating. I won't get into the right college. How am I supposed to get a good job? It's tempting to conclude that we must cheat in order to survive. This is true in other areas of life, too. Do you cheat on your taxes? Telling yourself, how else am I supposed to pay my bills? That's my money, I earned it. Do you steal ideas from your coworkers? How else am I supposed to get ahead? You might say. Do you cheat on your spouse? How else am I supposed to get satisfaction? You might tell yourself. Too often we go astray in listening to ourselves and the consequences are grave. We think we know better than God what we need, what our situation calls for, and what we have to do. We convince ourselves by saying things like, it's a necessary evil, or even that everyone else is doing it. True wisdom and true knowledge do not come from within us. We are no longer a trustworthy source. We all have a kind of moral vertigo. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. But let's be honest for a minute. It's hard to trust God. Trusting God is hard. We want to know why. Why did my girlfriend break up with me? I thought she was the one. I'm really lonely. I want a spouse. Why, when I want to work, can I not find a good job? You tell me to work in your scriptures. The man who doesn't work won't eat. How can I provide for my family? Why don't I have a good job? Why am I not free from this addiction? Why is my body racked with physical pain all the time, day and night? Why? There's some confusion here, and it's that We often seek an explanation because we think once we know why, we'll be able to endure the suffering better. And even worse, sometimes we want an explanation because what we really want is for God to justify himself to us. I want to know why because I want to know, God, if your reasoning is up to snuff. I want to know if it's really good enough. There's a classic story about God and suffering in the Bible. It's called the book of Job. Now, Job is a man from Uz. We don't know where that is. He doesn't have an Israelite name, so we don't know who he is. Neither do his three friends. And we don't know what time all of this took place. It's as though the author was saying, those aren't the details I want you to focus on. And there's a question that arises in every person's mind at the beginning of the book of Job. It's why is Job suffering? Why did God allow Job to suffer? You see, Job was a righteous man. He was a blameless man. So God himself says at the beginning of the book, look at my servant Job. He is righteous. He is blameless. He is upright. But then God allows all this disaster to take place in his, his life. He loses his uh, job, so to speak, all his wealth. His body is afflicted with sores. His children all die. And his wife, the last thing that she says to him is, why don't you just curse God and die? This is Job's life. All of us, we read this book and we think, well, there must be an answer to why it is that God is allowing Job to suffer in this way. The reality is, even as you go through the book, and Job and his three friends, they're all discussing why it is that Job is suffering, you realize that you're not actually going to get an answer to that particular question. You see, Job and his friends, they have a conception of justice that goes something like this. If you're a good person and you do good things, good things will happen to you. If you're a bad person or a wicked person and you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. Well, Job is an upright man, so clearly this suffering is unjust. And then the other one says, well, no, you must have some secret sin. And see, there, there, there's a problem with their lens. God finally comes into the picture and at the end and he doesn't say, Job, Job, here's why I made you suffer. He says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Who are you? To judge me. I don't like that answer. That answer frightens me. It puts me off. But what God is really saying there is he's saying, Job, you cannot see. You do not have the vantage point from which to judge whether or not I am just or not. So Job says, I demand an answer for why it is that I am suffering. And rather than giving him one, God invites him to trust God invites Job to trust him. Proverbs 3, 6 through 8 reads, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. What this instructs us to do is actually to not pay attention to the outcomes so much, but rather... To focus on faithful obedience. If we focus too much on the outcomes of what we do, we will end up being wise in our own eyes. Is the outcome good? Great. I did it by my own understanding. Look at how good I am. Look at what I have made. I know how to do things. If it's bad, on the other hand, we will be tempted to call God unjust. God, was I not faithful to you? God, did I not do what I was supposed to do? Did I not make the grades? Where is my job? We are not to focus on the outcomes because either way, good or bad, when hardship comes, we will not know how to endure because we will have trusted ourselves more than we have trusted God. Trusting God is hard because it means entrusting yourself to him and to his care. It means giving your life over to him for him to do with what he will. Trusting God means letting God be God. And it means accepting your place as his creature. This is what that phrase, fear of the Lord, is getting at. It means giving God his proper place in your life. It means accepting your role as a faithful servant. Wisdom and knowledge begin, so says Proverbs 1.7, in the fear of the Lord. Wisdom and knowledge begin in recognizing the truth of your role and of God's role. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. In the account of the transfiguration... God the Father spoke from heaven, saying, This is my son. Listen to him. God's grace comes in the form of a man to be listened to. God himself comes and says, Listen to me. Going to school really is about learning, but God may not be using it to teach you about science and about math and about language arts, wonderful and important as those things are. Rather, school and all of life is about learning to listen to the one who made you. It's about learning to be faithful, whatever the outcome. It's about learning to entrust yourselves to God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Let's pray. Father in heaven, heal us, refresh us, teach us to trust you, teach us to be faithful no matter what the outcome. Guard us, Lord, against being wise in our own eyes. Make us humble that we might not call you unjust, but rather would submit to you and say, I don't know, but I know God is good. that sink deeply into our hearts as we look at Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.